things I wish I had never heard in church. Like, it'll be really cool. It's decorated like the inside of a whale. <laughs> I'm taking pictures. Um, other things that I wish I hadn't heard in church. Their hands were really grimy, so it made it stick better. <laughs> I'm a germaphobe, Jesse. That one's really bothering me. It's all I can do to touch the pulpit right now. <laughs> yeah. And we washed lettuce and our laundry <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> I am never eating at your house, Jesse. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, it's a Seinfeld episode. Do you guys remember the Seinfeld episode where he was washing the salad in the shower? Yeah. Uh, today is the last day in our Conversion All-Star uh, series, and I asked if you, if you had a pair of America's favorite shoes to wear them today, would you just put your hand in the air? Three of us. Right. Oh, yes. Good. That was better than asking you to put your feet in the air. Dina, right? So, and she did. Right on, girl. Good. Yeah. Uh, you know, Chuck Taylor's cons, converse. When, when the word all-star is used to describe a person, it's typically because they're so much better than their peers at something that they do. All-star athletes are the very best athletes in their leagues. But I've been sharing with you character studies of a group of people that I call the conversion all-stars, not because they're perfect Christians, but because they are perfectly believable Christians. And in a day and age that prizes realism in everything from music to movies to language to science, I think that it could help us to see the real lives of the real conversion all-stars. They were imperfect people whose hearts truly belonged to God, but who made real-life mistakes and who had real-life faults and weaknesses and real-life messes to clean up afterwards. Maybe it's best said this way. I think that we all look for heroes in the faith, not for superheroes, because superheroes are not believable. We don't need chiseled, statuesque, cape crusaders for Jesus. We need people whose efforts and struggles are shown right alongside their triumphs because that's really how all the rest of us live. So today we come upon our final conversion all-star, number four, a man named Joseph. And Joseph's story is one that takes a little bit of detective work and the ability to read between the lines a bit. But when you read between the lines in Joseph's story, there's a lot to see. We're first introduced to him in Acts chapter 4 this way. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The, the statement, the sentence is loaded with information that I think we should consider and get a, a hold of before going further. The, the statement first says that he was a Levite, and if you don't know a lot about biblical history, you think that he wears a certain kind of pants, and that's not what we're talking about. Levite, it means that he belonged to a certain tribe and that his tribal affiliation determined his destiny. When this guy was born, it was already determined what he was going to do with his life. Because of his family's lineage, he was supposed to serve as a spiritual servant and a leader, part of the workforce at Israel's temple or tabernacle, depending on you know, various points in their history. He was supposed to be a guy who would provide an opportunity and a setting for spiritual life for God's people. 
If you read Old Testament history, you read Old Testament law, you'll find that the Levites were an amazing group of people. One family of the Levites were priests. They were the people doing all the hacking and slaying of animals and the presenting of them for sacrifice. But the, the larger clan of, of Levites, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of these men, and their job was to make sure that the temple or the tabernacle, the place of worship, was a place where God's people could go, they could meet God, they could, they could have their spiritual needs met, and then they could go right home, and the Levites would take care of the cleanup and the preparation for the future. Well, here's this guy named Joseph. He's born into this Levite family. It's an important thing for us to know. But there's a problem with him being a Levite because the verse also tells us that he was from Cyprus, that he lived in a foreign nation. He didn't live in Israel, but in an island nation sufficiently far enough away from Israel that it would mean that Joseph's family had abandoned their spiritual post. It meant that they were no longer willing to serve in their rotation at the temple. This wasn't full-time work for these people. They were broken up into bands, some of them musicians, some of them firewood cutters, some of them sweepers. I mean, there, there was utility to take care of. And, and they served in rotations where they would go to the temple, go to the tabernacle, and serve for a period of time and then go back home to their spouses and families. But the problem is that Joseph, had moved, his family had moved to a foreign nation um, you know, had to sail to get there. That was kind of difficult. It means that his family had abandoned their spiritual post. They weren't willing to serve any longer in their rotation at the temple. It also means that they had changed the way that they thought about the God of Israel because the Levites were a people who weren't given an inheritance in terms of real estate or land uh, that they could pass down from one generation to the next. Instead, they were dependent upon the rest of the people to be faithful in the giving of tithes and offerings to the Lord to support them and their families. But when you move away and you abandon your post, it means that at some level, you're not any longer going to depend on or even accept God's provision for you if you're a Levite who's left the country. So here's Joseph. He has a destiny. He's born to be a guy who sets the scene for the spiritual life of the people of Israel. But at some point in his family's history, the family had said, ah, enough of that. They took off, lived in a foreign nation. But something happened in the life of Joseph. We can only speculate how it came about. But somehow, somebody made their way to Jerusalem, heard the message of Jesus, and made their way back out to Cyprus. And the next thing we know, there's this Christian man named Joseph, very much a Christ follower. And when the Lord got a hold of his heart, he began to shape him so that he was like Jesus himself, and he became generous toward the, all the people who were gathered around him. So as we read in the verse, he sold a field that he owned. Oh, wait a minute, he wasn't supposed to own fields. Another little family problem there. Sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. But here's the thing that we learn about Joseph that is perhaps the most important. It, it tells us about his character. It tells us about the way that he viewed the world and the way that he went about conducting himself whenever he was around God's people. He was a consistent source of encouragement to everyone, so much so that the apostles quit calling him Joseph and instead called him Barnabas. I think I shared this with you uh, sometime in the past. Barnabas is a, is a, a conjunction. It's two words crammed together, bar, son of, nabas, encouragement. 
They said, this guy is so encouraging that we ought to just call him encouragement boy. Uh, or, or in their vernacular, son of encouragement. He is like encouragement itself. Doesn't mean that his dad's name was encouragement, because that would be awkward, <laughs> right? Uh, but that it so came to define his every action that the people said he's like the most encouraging guy I ever met. Well, call him encouragement boy or son of encouragement. You know, I wonder if they were going to use the phrase son of, daughter of, to describe us today. How do you think people would fill in the blank? I don't know. Um, you think about that for you. I'll think about it for me. Of what are you a son or daughter? Whatever it is that you might fill in that blank with today, know this. God can so go to work in your life that you gain a new identity. Joseph was changed, and you can be too. That's Barnabas' background, but once he then steps into the light on the New Testament stage, we don't have to guess things about him or infer things about him anymore. Let's see what the book of Acts tells us about this guy that makes him a conversion all-star. That is a, a believable example of Christian life and faith. If you look at uh, chapter 11 of Acts, if you've got Bibles, you can flip through them a bunch today. Chapter 11, verse 24 says, He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What this text tells us is that Barnabas wasn't just a guy with a great personality. He wasn't a guy who was great, a great person all on his own. Instead, he was a person who realized his dependence upon God, invited God to come in and take over. If filled means anything, it means that God gets to take over. But when he allowed God to come in and permeate his heart, and permeate his mind, we also learn that Barnabas earned this, this great reputation among people. If you look at chapter 11, uh, let's see, verses 23 and 24, um, you can see that, one, that phrase again. He was a good man. Um, you use that phrase to describe people once in a while, but you don't use it to describe everybody, do you? He's a really good man. If you read on down into chapter 14, you can see um, that Barnabas was a person whose goodness was really, really evident enough that it tripped people up from time to time. You look at chapter 14, verse 12, it's uh, much later in the Acts story, and Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey, and they come to this city uh, named Lystra, and all of a sudden, things go crazy. I mean, it's just Paul and Barnabas. It's just Paul and Barnabas, but they walk into the city, and they start talking about God, and the people looked at him and said, when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Whatever it says about Paul, it says that he talked a lot. And what it says about Barnabas is that just by the way he conducted himself, they thought he was the chief god of the universe. Yeah, you're familiar enough with Greek and Roman mythology, right, to remember that Zeus was the big guy? He was the one before whom all the rest of the gods kind of shuddered and they ran about to do his bidding. 
I don't know what it was about Barnabas that when he and Paul came into the city and began speaking to people about Christ, that the people assumed this guy must be the God of all gods, but it means that you should underline good in the previous passage when it says he was a good man. Yeah. Chapter 9, verses 19 through 28 is kind of a long passage. I won't read it today, but it tells us that Barnabas connected with Paul when no one else wanted to. I think it's one of the things that makes him a conversion all-star. You know how it goes, right? There's people you don't want to connect with. Come on, admit it. Shake your heads up and down. There are people you do not want to connect with, right? Uh, Paul was really high on the list for virtually everybody. He was kind of a know-it-all. He killed Christians, did mean things to them. And so the Christian community had heard that Paul was in town, Saul at the time was in town, that he'd changed his evil ways and he had become one of the people who loved Jesus and wanted to serve him. And very quickly at church that morning, pastor or whoever said, let's put together a committee to go receive our brother Saul. Everybody who wants to help, raise your hands. Empty set. Except for Barnabas. He said, well, I like to go you get in the picture of who this guy is he's he's generous toward God and toward God's people he's a man who conducts himself in such a way that some people think he might be a God come in the flesh and when the meanest hombre Christian killer in the world comes into town he says I think we'd get along this is a good man he didn't allow all the negative talk and the fear to affect the way that he thought and lived. C consider the plight of an outsider to the faith, Saul. That's what Barnabas did. He remembered the days when he was an outsider to the faith, and so he considered Paul's plight because he'd, he'd once been there. He'd been a spiritual pariah. You know what that word means, pariah? Pariah is the word for the feral dogs that roam throughout northern Africa and uh, and the Near East. They're these scurvy, disgusting-looking animals that live off of garbage and dung. Okay, get in the picture? That's the word that people used for the outcasts back in the day. Guys like uh, Simon the tax collector and people who were outside of the Jewish faith. Barnabas had grown up in the Jewish faith, but he'd been somewhat of a shrinker-backer, a guy who didn't really do what he was supposed to do, a man whose family had decided we're out of the religion business, a guy who didn't take it seriously anymore. He was a spiritual pariah to the rest of the people who were really dialed in and seeking God. And because he remembered that, he thought he might know exactly how Saul felt. Was he uncomfortable, uncomfortable approaching Saul? Yes. Was it risky? Yes. Was it likely to be misunderstood by other Christ followers? Yes. Was he likely to have to apologize to Paul for the behavior of all the other Christians? Yes. So when you consider all the costs of reaching out to Saul, and you consider the fact that Barnabas did it anyway because he loved Saul more than he loved himself, you realize this man is an awful lot like Jesus. I'm beginning to see why people confused him with the God. 
Another reason that Barnabas is a conversion all-star is because not only did he reach out once to this Saul guy, but he also took responsibility for guiding Saul through the beginning days of his faith, and he got him really connected well with God's people, and he got him rooted and established as a real disciple. Chapter 9, verses 27 and 28 will tell you about how how he just kind of guided Paul through the early days of his faith, helped him connect with God and God's people, helped him grow in his faith, and then he helped him begin to serve. They engaged in the mission together and began to travel. But interestingly enough, Paul kind of got off on the wrong foot on the serving Jesus thing. He took off with Barnabas. He starts preaching the gospel all over the place, and he did it in ways that always made people want to kill him. Okay, just a little honesty for a minute. Do you know some Christians like that? (laughs) I mean, Paul was that guy. He was the guy that people wished he would just quit talking about Jesus. Everywhere he went, they wanted to kill him. He goes up to Damascus, preaches Jesus in such a fashion that they said, we ought to kill him. So what did they do? They put him in a basket and they lowered him through a hole in the wall down to the ground and said, beat it. And he took off. So where'd he go? He went down to Jerusalem and he preached the gospel there. And thousands of people said, what must we do to kill him (laughs) instead of what must we do to be saved? Everywhere the guy went early on, they were just saying, out of here. Barnabas connects with this guy and goes on a missionary journey. However, Saul, Paul, because he wasn't doing very well at this, disappears. And there's a short little interim in the book of Acts where he's just gone. The, the passage tells us that he went back to his hometown after he escaped Jerusalem. He went back to his hometown in Tarsus. And then the story just goes on like, well, that's the end of Paul. His early ministry had been creating instant hostility. And then he just disappears from the stage. Out of the missionary business, apparently, but definitely disconnected from the other apostles and the central ministry of the church. But chapter 9 and chapter 11 that tell this story tell us that Barnabas then went to Tarsus after a while looking for Saul. He crawled under a rock somewhere, but Barnabas went after him. Went to Tarsus and found him, and he brought him back into the ministry and began team teaching with him at Antioch and kept him right there close by his side for an entire year, making sure that Saul was good and rooted and connected and skilled at teaching the faith. Then Barnabas launched out on a missionary journey and partnered with Paul on two projects on these missionary journeys. The first was this. They witnessed for Jesus. Okay? They went about building the kingdom of God from outside the church through mission work. So if you read chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, you'll see that they're, they're heading all over the place. And they're witnessing for Jesus, building the kingdom from outside the church by mission work. But Barnabas and Paul also partnered on serving within a local church and building the kingdom from inside the local church. Chapter 11 which tells a little bit of that story. Another reason that I think Barnabas was one of these conversion all-stars, believable examples, is this. Barnabas didn't get what his faithfulness deserved. Instead, he was rejected by the very guy that he reached out to, Saul. You can read about it in chapter 15, but it's, it's this terrible story. Barnabas, he's a good man. He's so good, people 
people think he's God. And, and he reaches out to the outcasts and he takes the risks in the name of Jesus and he, he goes and, and finds the wayward one and brings him back and re-engages him in mission. That's a pretty faithful man. And here's what it got him. It got him rejected by the very guy he reached out to. Paul, it turns out, ended up loving his own opinion more than he loved Barnabas and so he decided that they couldn't have a working relationship together anymore. Prior to this point in the story, Barnabas had been the guy leading the duo. If you read Acts, it'll say Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, almost exclusively so. Barnabas was the leader here, but as they got ready to take off on another missionary journey, Paul decided that he couldn't do it Barnabas's way anymore and that his opinion and his way were far more important than the relationship. And as a result, they went Splitsville, and Paul steps out from underneath Barnabas's leadership, and he strikes out on his own. Here's a little news flash. People will sometimes disappoint us. Yeah, I know you already knew it. Christian or not, people will sometimes hurt us and let us down and disappoint us. We will sometimes suffer hurt that just doesn't fit with kingdom ideas and kingdom values. This is a very important lesson. The Bible does not promise us all roses if we just say a few nice things about Jesus. The church and its people are imperfect, and everybody has to say, yeah. The church and its people are imperfect, but notice that in one of these very ugly, imperfect situations. Barnabas didn't quit. Barnabas didn't run. Barnabas didn't lose faith. With faith in a perfect God, listen now, with faith in a perfect God and grace toward imperfect people like himself and like John Mark and like Paul, Barnabas stayed connected with God and God's people and continued to serve. Got to give you a little bit of background. Here's why they broke up. <laughs> broke up. Was that uh, Paul and Barnabas had, had struck out on missionary journey number one, and they took this really, really young guy, probably a teenager. His name was John Mark. Uh, you'll find him often referred to in the New Testament as John Mark, but he wrote a book that's just titled Mark. Because like a lot of kids, college age, he dropped his first name. <laughs> I don't know, why did I say that? I don't know. Um, at any rate, they, uh, they struck out on this missionary journey, and about halfway through, John Mark said, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be, and I kind of miss my mom, and made up an excuse of some kind, and he blew out of there. And he left the, the part of the work that was his for everybody else to do. You know, the kind of guy who makes all of us mad. The kind of guy that we all badmouth because he doesn't have what it takes to stick it out and he's a quitter and he's a loser and he's, right? So he leaves and goes home. They're getting ready for missionary journey number two and Barnabas thinks, you know, we should probably invest in that guy. I see something in him that, that a lot of people don't. I'm pretty sure that he's grown up a little bit by now. And he says, Paul, let's make sure that we get John Mark and let's go. And Paul says, listen, um, once bitten, twice shy, there was an 80s, pop culture reference for you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah. He says, uh, not going to happen. If I'm going on this journey, 
the little flunky is staying home because I am not going to be put in a position to depend on the loser again and have him turn around and walk away. And Barnabas argues in John Mark's behalf, come on, you got to give him a chance. Remember, we gave you a chance. I know, but it was different because I'm me and he's John Mark and he's the guy who always quits and the, the, the fight escalated to the place that they went separate directions. Now get this. Barnabas had a card to play with Paul, right? He had the trump card. He said, I have taken care of you every step of the way since you came to Christ. I was the guy who reached out to you. I was the guy who discipled you in the faith. I was the guy who went and got you when you tucked tail and ran. And I'm the guy now who's saying, give another brother a chance. It was a pretty effective speech to everybody who was listening except Paul, who said, forget it, pal, and went his own way. Feel this. Barnabas didn't get what his faithfulness deserved. Maybe we could just erase his name from the blank and put yours in there. You ever feel like that? Like you don't get what your faithfulness deserved? I stuck by her all these years. I put up with his. Those kids don't even realize how much I... You ever feel like, like you don't get what your faithfulness deserves? Hey, Christian, can I just gently say to you, yeah, that's what the world is like. And this kingdom of which we have become a part, kingdom of Jesus, for now, it's in this world. And it means that even in the kingdom of Jesus, you are going to sometimes not get what your faithfulness deserves. Not while we're on this side. What does the scripture teach us about what happens when we cross over to the other side? There, there are treasures and rewards laid up for us. Deal is you can't tap them now. There's a fair amount of waiting that has to happen, and some of it fairly painful. Barnabas was a guy who didn't get what his faithfulness deserved. He was rejected by Paul. But get this. Barnabas also gained a long-lasting legacy. Here's the legacy. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. This is Paul, who's in prison again. This time he's facing Roman executioner, and he knows it. He, uh, he said, I'm... I'm I'm calling on all of my political rights. I deserve to get to be tried by Caesar himself. So they shipped him off to Rome, and here he was under house arrest for a couple of years. And it's, drawing, uh, on, it's going on and on and on, and pretty soon Paul begins to have this sense that uh, this whole I appeal to Caesar thing isn't going to work out the way that I'd hoped. And he's pretty sure that he is going to be martyred for his faith. He's writing a quick letter to Timothy, this, this one who's like a son in the faith to him. Everybody knows of Paul's love for Timothy, right? What does he write to Timothy? Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in the ministry. Can, can, can you feel what's taking place right here? The guy's getting right to the end of his life and he's going, 
I pushed that kid away. I didn't give him a chance. I judged him by a standard I wouldn't want to be judged by. I pushed Barnabas away. I don't even know where he is. But Timothy, get Mark, because I know you know where Mark is. Bring him with you, because he's helpful. He is helpful to me in my ministry. Now get this. Barnabas was faithful. He was faithful, he was faithful, he was faithful, he was faithful. He suffered for being faithful. He didn't get what his faithfulness deserved, at least not immediately. But by the end of Paul's life, something had changed in the heart of Paul. I have to believe that it had something to do with the influence of a Barnabas who kept saying, Paul, lighten up. Paul, go easy on him. Paul, give some grace. And we see this repentant Paul who turns from his wrong actions toward John Mark and says, bring him, bring him. Here's what else Barnabas got in terms of a long-lasting legacy. He got a restored relationship, but not with Paul. The reward for Barnabas' faithfulness was a restored relationship between two other people, between Paul and John Mark. See, what I wish I could do is I wish I could tell you Be faithful, and absolutely everything will work out. When Paul suffered a martyr's death, Barnabas, I'm sure, heard about it and wept. Because he had this old friend. He didn't want to be his friend anymore. But Barnabas is one who, long before Paul came to know Christ, had come to know him well and had found his grace to be sufficient for his suffering. I can't help but think that he took some delight in knowing that at least Paul and John Mark patched it up, even if he was still the knucklehead villain in the eyes of his old friend, Paul. Can I share with you a story from my life real quick and be done? As pastor, I get put in to the middle of a number of conflicts. It's not the best part of my job, uh, but it happens. And so uh, I, I've, I've been asked to, to sit down and, and work as an arbitrator, I guess, when between family members who were squabbling and some that were going far past squabble to the place of... Uh, We'll never be family again because I was supposed to get the inheritance, the farm, the fill in the blank. I get, I get put into some of those situations. I get put into a number of marital conflicts. And uh, one time several years ago now, I got put into the middle of a marital conflict. A dear brother in the Lord, a dear sister in the Lord. The brother was just walking away from his family for no good reason. No biblical grounds. Nobody else knew anything was wrong. And he just announced one day, I'm leaving. His wife grabbed me and said, you've got to go talk to him. And I did need to go talk to him. So I 
I went to his office that day, and I walked in, and he started small talking, and I said, are you kidding me? What are you doing? Have you lost your mind? You know, all the things good counselors (laughs) say. Um, (coughs) I said, you can't do this. You just can't. You've you've got a family. You've got kids. You've got a community that looks up to you. You've... My kids think the sun rises and sets over your house. What am I going to tell my kids if you walk away? And he patted me on the shoulder and said, I think it was nice of you to come. But don't think that I'm going to put up with some long line of Christians telling me how to live my life. So I went home and cried a bit. And then the next week I went back to see him, and the next week I went back to see him, and then then I just made a decision. Kind of trying to follow what I believe the scriptures teach in Matthew about handling conflict, and when you see a brother in a sin, I just decided I'm not holding hands with him while he walks away from the Lord. So, and that was that. And his family came to me and said, you're hurting him. I said, good, that's the point. It's supposed to hurt bad enough that he quits doing what he's doing. I'm not going to blow kisses his way while he walks away from you. Uh, He sunk into a deep depression. He was in bed for days at a time. He was making uh, suicidal threats to other people. And, uh, And I didn't budge. And I was really nervous about it. One day, he walked into my office and he said, "Um, I want you to know that I repented of my sins. And I reconciled with my wife. And I'm moving back in tomorrow. And this big grin comes across my face thinking, sweet, man, that Bible stuff works. <laughs> and, uh, and then he said, but I've got something I need to say to you. You are not a good friend to me. And he told me about how deeply I had hurt him and about how I had been untrue. And I'm listening to the guy who left his wife and kids tell me how untrue I am. It was cold and calculated, and I did it on purpose because all of the people who were, who were blessing him as he walked away from his spouse weren't helping him repent. And the scriptures teach certain things about that, the careful use of pain and suffering to turn people from their evil ways, whether we're talking children or brothers or sisters in sin. So he came to my office and told me, what a poor friend I am. And then went home to his family who he lives with today. And I got to leave that town knowing that I had the scorn of my former friend and his family. But you know what I gained? Reconciliation between him and his family. Listen, friends, this, uh, this gospel to which we are called is not a mathematical equation. 
Do what's right, you get good things. Avoid bad, you'll get blessed. Sometimes there is a high cost to being faithful. But God's not a jerk. You should write that down. That's good truth. God is not a jerk. So you know what he does? He takes what little bit of faithfulness you and the Holy Spirit can scrape together. And he sometimes uses it for the good of others. At your expense. That sounds like a bitter pill, doesn't it? If it does, I would call you to remember that we're the people who are really big fans of somebody suffering so that others could benefit. Right? Barnabas was a conversion all-star because he's this believable guy. He loved much. He risked much. It cost him. He didn't get to reap the benefit of Paul's repentance. He didn't get to reap the benefit of his own faithfulness, but God used his suffering and his faithfulness to benefit others. Maybe write this one down. Your suffering may not even be about you. What, what if God never makes your present pain and difficulty all better, but uses it to benefit somebody else? Can you trust that God is still good if he doesn't do what you want and eliminate all of the hardship in your life? Can you trust what you cannot see? That God might have a plan that includes you, but is bigger than you? Rick Warren said, God never wastes a hurt. Will you trust him with yours today? Will you consider the possibility that since you are here today and hearing this message, that it might be God's appointed day for you to forgive those who hurt you and let God use that hurt redemptively in someone else's life? Maybe today is God's appointed day for you to let go of their throats, for your wounded heart to be healed of bitterness and wounds as you decide to trust him with your present difficulties and release God to use them in the lives of other people in this world. In so doing, you will experience great mental, emotional, and spiritual freedom, and you will become a son or daughter of encouragement like Joseph Barnabas, who thought his life was supposed to count for somebody else's future. The cost of your salvation was paid totally and completely by Jesus. But the cost of the well-being of other people, many times, God calls us to pay it. But he promises strength for the journey, rewards that you can't lay your hands on on this side, and his presence with you in every moment of your hardship and heartache. Stand with me, please, and bow your heads and close your eyes. 
I'll open the altar today. If there's something that's heavy and hurtful that's just weighing on your shoulders and you would very much like for God to take it away, I'd invite you to come to the altar. But I will also tell you this. God may leave it on your shoulders, but promise to give you strength and help and comfort as you carry it. But know this. If he does it, it's not because he likes to torture people. It's not because he has fun watching you hurt. It's because he has wisdom and he has a plan. And he can use even your heartache and hardship to benefit others. If today you would say, I choose to trust God with my hurt, I would invite you to come and kneel at this altar and pray. I want you to just take five seconds to make up your minds whether you want to come and pray or stay where you are and pray. Lord, I like your other examples. I like the people who win wars. I like the people who walk on water. I like, I like the people who's, who got to have their children raised from the dead. I like those examples. I hurt for the Barnabases in this world who follow you and love you and by the power of your spirit are faithful to you, but who pay a heavy cost for their faithfulness. Lord, we've grown up in America with the sense that it would never cost us to be Christians, not more than a few bucks, not more than, you know, a Sunday morning in a comfortable place. But the reality is, in this kingdom of yours, you get to use us and move us around to accomplish your game plan. And this morning, we want you to know that it hurts us. And we are confessing our pain and our confusion to you. Like Jesse said to us earlier, I don't get it. I, I don't understand it, how a God allows things like that little girl to be beaten. But we're going to take Jesse's example right alongside Barnabas' example today. Say that we choose to trust in the goodness of that which we cannot see. And ask first that you would take this pain, this sorrow, and lift it from our shoulders and bring us healing and reconciliation for the broken relationships. But even as we do, we want you to know, Lord, that we are reaching out to you this morning because we have decided to trust you. We're going to trust you, not just trust you to do what we want, so we are placing ourselves in your hands this morning. What we ask, Lord, is that you would use it to train our character, but also for great benefit for other people. What a blessing it was for Paul to know that that young boy Mark would come and comfort him at his life's end. What a comfort it must have been for Barnabas to know it too. So I pray for these brothers and sisters of mine gathered here, kneeling here, seated there, standing there this morning, that you would redeem our heartaches. Place them 
and ourselves in your hands, believing that the just judge of the universe will do what is right. We also ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that we might be faithful to the end, like Joseph Barnabas. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I'll ask this. I imagine some folks would like to remain here praying for a bit, and so I'd ask that you would just kind of hold your conversation until you're out in the foyer. But go with the grace and the peace that comes from knowing that God is good and that he never wastes a hurt. Go in peace. Amen.